0: I'd like to have you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, last week during our baccalaureate service, I gave a message based on uh, the second chapter of Colossians, verses 6 through 10. But we're going to come back to that because I use that as a basis for a message for our graduates. And uh, yet there is a lot of stuff that... uh, we don't want to miss. Uh, so using a passage generally is okay, uh, but we're getting very specific in our study of the book of Colossians. Just to give you an idea, of course, we spent 11 weeks in, in chapter one. Uh, I, I would like to say I'm not going to spend 11 weeks on chapter two, but that's up to the Lord. We'll see. But uh, today we're going to look at, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 and look closely at verses 1 and 2 and then deal with the rest of the, of the passage uh, next time. One thing to remember that the theme of this particular book is the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is God, that he is God the Son and not just the Son of God. That he is, in fact, the creator, as Paul has made it very clear in chapter 1. That he is the head of the church, and that he has the preeminence over all things. This was the theological foundation that Paul laid out for a very young church that was facing the uh, onslaught of false teaching, in particular, the false teaching of Gnosticism. Now we're getting very close in our study of the book of Colossians to dealing directly with the issue of Gnosticism. But first, Paul gives us this particular transitional passage where he says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh— that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying, And beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. In the last section of chapter one, beginning with verse 24, the Apostle Paul focused his attention on the needs of the church, the body of Christ. Now, generally, and using his testimony as an example, he pointed out the body's need for a servant, a minister who would labor tirelessly for the church, one who would willingly suffer for it, one chosen by God to proclaim the word of God, one who would impart the great mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, one who would preach Christ and in so doing, warning and teaching every man, and one who would work arduously while depending on Christ for his strength and his energy. Well, Paul was such a man. In fact, if you go back to verse 29 of chapter 1, Paul said, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Striving according to the working of Christ in his life, which worketh in him mightily. But what had to be the essential reason for Paul's doctrinal and theological foundation on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the head of the body the church becomes magnified and and, and more front and center because now the apostle is about to reveal a full scale attack on the false teaching that was imposing and impressing itself on the churches at Colossae, Laodicea and other churches in that region and as I mentioned it is the False teaching of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. We're now in that transitional section of Paul's letter where he is moving from a presentation of Christ's headship and lordship to an assault upon the sinister and treacherous doctrines that were endangering the lordship of Christ in the church of Colossae. Now, I say that about Gnosticism, that it's sinister, that it's treacherous. But it isn't just Gnosticism that is sinister and treacherous in our day and time. Because there are many doctrines that are false that have been creeping into the church over many, many years. And the reason why they're having such an effect in some areas of the church today is because people have set aside the word of God. They have set aside really the full focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, we're dealing with something that is prophetic to this day. And we should never just think of it as, as being, well, it was, it was a problem in Paul's time. It's a problem in ours. And by the way, it's more of a problem today than in his time. Now, one of the means by which Paul was launching this attack on Gnosticism was by taking certain terms which were used by the Gnostics and turning them into effective weapons of Christian truth. There were words such as teleos. We've seen that word before. As our study was ending in chapter 1, we saw it in verse 28. Where teleos means, the word is perfect, but it means mature and complete. The Gnostics' understanding of perfection was a lot different than that of, of, of the believer in Jesus Christ and then there is the word musterion musterion of course we get the word mystery from that and that's the word that Paul uses in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1 as well as in verse 2 of chapter 2 we know it to be something hidden And of course, the Gnostics would use that which was hidden to keep things hidden from those who didn't have their level of understanding as uh, they taught Gnosticism, that you have to come up to a certain level to begin to have certain things revealed to you. But that's not what it means in the Christian faith. That's not what it means in the church, because a mystery simply is something that is hidden like a secret, but it's now revealed. Every mystery that God mentions was something that had been hidden, but now has been revealed. And we'll see not only what, but who. I think you know who. And then there's the word Sophia, which means wisdom. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 28, as well as in verse 3 of our present chapter 2. And then there's Gnosis, or Gnosis, 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 in the Greek, which means knowledge. It means to know and knowing. And once again, these are words, Sophia and Gnosis, were words that were used by the the Gnostics, but it held to a different level and had to a different standard than the way it is used in the scriptures. And then comes the word epignosis, which is one word that really is to be fully understood in the church because it means knowledge through experience. It means the full discernment that we receive by knowing Jesus Christ, by coming to faith in Christ. And it isn't anything that uh, that brings us to any level. I think that we all uh, agree that when we come to Christ, we don't really go up in our levels of understanding. We go down. We go down to our knees. We go down and come hum- in humility and, and let God mature us from the inside. in the word of God, in the understanding of God's word, in the understanding of God's ways, in the understanding of the cross, in the understanding of the work of Jesus. But that would be full discernment. So how the Gnostics used these words were in most cases much different than their original meanings, and certainly different than the way that they were used and applied by the apostles and the gospel writers, not to mention believers themselves. So even the words at the onset of this passage are full of meaning, particular words. For example, in verse one of Colossians chapter two, it says, for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul uses this word conflict, and there are actually two words that are linked together. The word striving from chapter 1, verse 29, and the word conflict here in verse 1, these two words reveal the nature of Paul's prayer life for the churches facing the attacks of the Gnostics. Now, I mentioned prayer life not to get out of the context of what's being said, but in fact to show you that this is the context of what is being said. Because always remember this, the apostle Paul was in Rome in prison when he wrote this letter. His understanding of what was taking place in Colossae came through the fact that the pastor of the church, who we believe was Epaphras, came to visit Paul in Rome and came to let him know about the struggles that they were having because of this heresy of Gnosticism coming into the church. So what Paul did was two things. Paul prayed, for them and he wrote a letter to them those are the two things that he could do so understand it from that per- perspective and I want to mention that again here in just a minute because I want you to remember where Paul was so both of the words were terms that were used in athletics striving and conflict the word striving in verse 29 of the last chapter is the word in the Greek agonizomai agonizomai and the word conflict is the word agon. So you'll notice both words begin with the same four letters. Agon, agonitsomai and agon, striving and conflict. Obviously they're from the same root word because conflict is the root word. They refer to the strenuous effort put forth by an athlete. athlete, in most cases a runner, to win an event or to win a race. Our English words agony and agonize come from this same root word. It it, it means to struggle. It means that there is a struggle to compete for a prize. Any athlete worth his, his weight is going to test his body to its limits. Work his body out to the limits that he could take it to become better at whatever he does, he or she does. It is uh, to struggle, to compete for a prize. It is to contend. And again, striving in conflict together means to contend with an adversary to the end. That fits the Christian life each and every day of our life. We contend with an adversary every day. And we are not to give up until the very end. Well, we're not to give up at all, but we go to the very end against this adversary of ours. For it also means to endeavor to accomplish something. We have a goal. Every athlete has a goal. It could be a finish line. It could be a distance, but it it is a goal. And the more that you work out, through agony and agonizing and contending and struggling to put yourself in that position. It is is a way of showing that we are to fight and to labor fervently for that prize. Paul talks about it in that manner in in a few places in the scriptures. You know, we may have often times heard people say that they're striving for greatness or striving for this or striving for that. The very same idea. But as I said, remember that Paul was a prisoner in Rome and remembering that we would have to conclude that Paul was striving in prayer for the saints in Colossae that they would mature in the faith. That is really what Paul is saying. Now, in, in the Olympics, for example, and I think we're all familiar with the, the Olympics, uh, at, the, at the onset of the games, at the beginning of the games, every nation... Uh, goes through a time of, of uh, presenting themselves in a parade, so to speak, uh, parade situation where they're led by a flag bearer. A flag bearer bearing the flag of each, each nation or country. Well, Paul was the flag bearer. Paul was raising the banner of truth. That is the flag of the believer in Jesus Christ. It is the banner of truth. And he raised the banner of truth in chapter 1 to make it clear what truth they were to stand upon. They were to stand upon the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. They were to stand upon the fact that God, that he was God in the flesh, that he is the creator of all things, that he is the redeemer, that he is the savior and the eternal son of God. And that he is God the son. The fact that he would pray that these believers in Colossae would mature in the faith brings us actually to a second great need of the church. It isn't just a need of one person to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and one to bear that, that banner. The need is for mature people, people in the church, the body of Christ, the whole of the body who are to consistently grow in the Lord. That is the need. For mature people who are consistently growing in the Lord, that's what the body of Christ needs. And the key to that statement that I just made is found in the word consistently. Consistently. A mature people are consistent in all they do. A mature people are consistently growing in the Lord. Oh, now, from time to time, we may, you know, hit little levels here and maybe kind of take a little step back. But I'm hoping like we take 10 steps forward and maybe one half a step back sometimes and then, you know, take another 10 steps forward. I can tell you that we are not as consistent sometimes in that particular pattern because oftentimes I see some people take two steps forward and three steps back. And I can assure you, you're not going anywhere. If you keep taking more steps back, than you are taking the steps forward. So, a mature people are consistently growing in the Lord and going toward the Lord. And one of the great tragedies of today's society is the lack of consistency, especially in many churches today. Few people are consistent in their daily walk with the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. What would be the marks of a mature people? What would be the marks of a mature church? Well, we've already touched on the first one. And that is a mature church must have servants who struggle in prayer and concern for others. As Paul did for people who he had never met or seen or even visited and they hadn't seen him. They had heard about him but they had never seen him. He makes that clear in verse one. But a mature church must have servants who struggle in prayer and concern for others. Prayer is not an easy thing to do. Would you all agree? Prayer is not an easy thing to do. It is demanding. And it is difficult labor. When taken seriously, you begin to know what it means to struggle. What it means to strive and to bear conflict in prayer. To agonize in prayer. There's no greater example of agonizing in prayer than to see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. To the extent that drops of blood were coming forth as as sweat, there was blood coming out of his sweat glands as he prayed, agonizing before the Lord. If it be thy will, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thy, thy will be done. That's agony. Because in that prayer, he's actually praying for us. He was praying for all of us. That great conflict between the the flesh and the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, Paul talks about in the book of Romans and in various other places. A person who prays in this manner will always face the interrupting attacks of wandering thoughts and imaginations and pressing matters. De- de- demanding work, strict schedules, thoughts that struggle against being obedient to prayer. You ever had those? The thoughts that struggle against obedient, uh, being obedient to pray. I don't want to pray. Oh, I can't pray. Not now. I can't pray, I'm too angry. I'm too this, I'm to that. I saw too much politics on TV today. <sighs> not only that, but then there's proud and lofty things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And that's not even mentioning all the physical distractions that keep us from striving in prayer like cell phones and doorbells and the like. No, there are no mysteries. Let me say this outright: there are no mysteries when it comes to the issue of prayer. There really aren't. The Lord Himself has always been very clear about prayer. Jeremiah twenty-nine, verse thirteen: "And ye shall seek me, and find me, when ye search for me with all your heart." That's pretty clear and it's pretty simple you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart don't forget that last statement you have to search for him with all your heart prayer cannot be anything done automatically like you know it's it, it you know it's just recording. You might as well record, uh, you know, one prayer and then turn it on every day. That's not prayer. That's not seeking the Lord with your heart. Jeremiah 33 verse 3 says, Call unto me and I will answer thee. And show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Most of the time when we pray, we're praying and asking for things that we don't know. That's why we pray. Lord, reveal this. What what am I to do? Where, Where am I to go? By the way, don't call me. I mean, you can call me and ask me to pray with you and I'll pray with you, but I don't have the answer, but God does. The whole idea about prayer is that we call unto God and he'll answer. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be open unto you, for everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And by the way, the, the implied understanding here is that you do so with with all of your heart. There's a little phrase that we find in Luke 18, verse 1, that says, And Jesus spoke a parable unto them to this end. In other words, there there was the reason for him to to speak a parable to them with this goal in mind that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And of course, it it follows with the pattern of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples uh, that begins, Our Father, which art in heaven. But he he prayed or, or or he spoke to his disciples this parable with a goal. The goal is that men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up in the matter of prayer. And it brings to mind then the complimentary letter to the to the Ephesian church. That that is that is that is pretty much uh, you know that goes hand in hand with the book of Colossians. Much of what you find in Ephesus, or I should say in Ephesians, is found in a, in a in a smaller package in, in the book of Colossians. But it, it it has this strength about prayer in Ephesians six eighteen. Now that's following something that Paul has already said. But let me read verse eighteen. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And what it is that Paul had begun to speak about was the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this age and of this world and of spiritual wickednesses in high places. We wrestle against them, and because we do, we have to put on the armor of God. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the uh, the belt of truth, and, and I'm just kind of going from head to toe here. Uh, the, the shoes of the of the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith, and then he says, praying always with all prayer, it's a weapon. Our prayer is a weapon. Our supplication before the spirit of God and in the spirit of God is a weapon. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, which brings us back to Colossians. We are to pray for one another. We're to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ going through these times of struggle and trial. And then, second, a mature people have hearts that are strong and confident and assured. As we see in verse 2, but let me read verse 1 to. Fill in the context here. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted. Being knit together in love. And by the way, that love, the word love there is the word agape in the Greek. And unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that their hearts might be comforted. Some of your translations may say encouraged. That their hearts would be encouraged. The word comforted, by the way, is the word paraklethosen in the Greek, and it means to be strong, to be strengthened, and to be established, but also it means to be braced. It means to be braced. And therefore, it can also mean to be encouraged. But to be braced, that's that's an, an interesting picture because when you brace something, you're bracing it so that it doesn't move. You bracket something, it has maybe a swivel on it, but, but so that it does, it, so it doesn't move from where it's intended use is to be. And the word to be comforted is to be braced. But not just braced, but also, as it says, to be knit together. So this is what Paul agonized in prayer for the church. That they would be filled with a strength that stirs confidence and assurance, that braces a person to withstand the onslaught of false teaching, of trials and temptations, a strength that comforts and builds assurance and confidence in life both now and eternally. You see, the heart of every believer longs for such strength that builds confidence and assurance and comfort. We should never leave a prayer meeting or any time of prayer that we have with others or even with ourselves. We should never leave more fearful in the sense of the things that can happen in the world than when we entered into prayer. We should leave confident now that we have met with God, that we have heard from God, that we are ready to serve God with all the confidence that says, Lord, I don't care what I face out there. I'm going to go because you're with me. That should be the goal of our prayer. That we don't leave without God and without Christ and and the presence of his Holy Spirit and the power of his Spirit. We don't leave without it. Better than American Express. Remember, don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without Jesus. And don't leave home without the word of God in your heart and in your mind. Because prayer will strengthen that as well. You should not read the word of God without praying through the word of God. Lord, give me wisdom, understanding as I read this passage today. As I continue on. Lord, give me wisdom and guidance. But what Paul is saying is that strong hearts come from love. Strong hearts come from love, and not just any love, it it comes from agape love, God's unconditional love. There isn't a person in the church of Jesus Christ, and, and bear with me here, listen carefully. There isn't a person in the church of Jesus Christ that hasn't felt alone, Seemingly without friends, left out, ignored, maybe even unloved. Some have been neglected, bypassed, overlooked, disfavored, and even uncared for. Insecurity sets in and causes withdrawal. We've all gone through that. To some level and to some degree, we've all gone through that. But Paul states that the answer is that we are being knit together in love. He says that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. And this is a beautiful phrase. Those three words is one word in the Greek. It is the single Greek word, which literally means to be compacted together. I've been making bread lately. I I don't use I don't use machines. I am the machine, and I do. It's kind of therapeutic for me, you know. I just, just gotta do something, and then I get to eat it, you know. And by the way, it's pretty good too, you know. So, but that's not why I said that. Why did I say? It? Oh, well, because you know, at times you have to put that bread, and you've got to knead it a little bit, even though most of what I do is no knead bread. I don't need it, both K-N-E-A-D and N-E-E-D, but I still make it. Uh, But you know, when you do it, you're compacting it. Eventually, you know, if you put yeast in it, it's, it's gonna grow, but then you've gotta compact it again, you know, compact, knit together. That's the picture. It's the idea, God has done that with us. We're being knit together. In the love of God, in the love of Christ, in the unconditional love of God and of Christ. Well, one task of the church is to build love among themselves or each other. One task of this church is the same, to build love among ourselves and each other. That takes time. It's not a futile thought or a futile exercise every time I say, you know, greet each other. And you got to get over there, walk, get over there, move around a little bit. you got to do that. It takes a little effort, but you know what? You get to meet somebody, somebody different, somebody new. not doing that just because we're trying to change things around. So we do this every week. But the fact of the matter is... It gives us a little bit of an insight into how we are to live our lives as believers. Man, we got to move. We got to go. We got to meet. We got to do these things to become knit together and compacted together in the love of Christ. When hearts are knit together in love, then the hearts of every believer will be strong and encouraged and braced and assured and confident and comforted. Take note that strong hearts do not come from religion. It doesn't come from religious ceremonies. It doesn't come through ritual and laws, rules and or regulations. Strong hearts come from love. Hearts knit together in the love of Christ. We are surrounded. We are are enclosed in a common bond. Our lives are not only knit to Christ. They are also knit to those who own and love Christ's name. Here's the truth. We cannot unravel our lives from those of other believers. No matter how hard we try. If we say, well, I'm I'm really, you know, linked to these believers, but those other ones, yeah, you know. What does that reveal? Immaturity. We're talking about maturity here. We may come from different social backgrounds or have different levels of education. That's this room right now. And it's okay. Because we all love Jesus. We may have been raised in different cultures and countries. I know that to be a fact, that that's in this room today, it's okay. We love Jesus. We're knit together. In the love of Christ, aren't we? I would hope so. But here's something that I really want you to listen to. A Mary Magdalene is made one with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Think about that. You know Mary Magdalene's background. And you know Mary, the mother of Jesus' background. Yet they're knit together. And they were knit together before, during, and after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Especially after the resurrection. As both were waiting for the promise of the Father. Jesus in speaking to his, his own disciples who each were quite different from each other, by the way, right? They're mostly fishermen, about seven of them. And <clears throat> The rest, you know, tax collector here. And who knows what else there? And when they all got together to follow Jesus for three and a half years, they probably wondered, what are we doing with these guys? But after three and a half years, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, especially on the way to the cross, Jesus... On the night that he was betrayed, he gave this command to them. He said to those disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment. I give unto you that ye love one another. Now notice that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Who did they have to look at but each other? And then Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one to another. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. This is John 15 verses 12 and 13. Closer now to the garden of Gethsemane. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. That was what Jesus was about to do. Lay down his life for his friends. And he said, that's how you love one another. But strong hearts will also come from knowing that what one believes about God is true, reliable, and accurate. so Paul says that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not just knit together in love but knit together in understanding who God is. And who Christ is. Let me give you a quick definition of the word orthodoxy. It is authorized or generally accepted theory, doctrine, or practice. That is what orthodoxy is. And I wanted to define the word because it is used in a quoted statement I wanted to share with you. But first let me say that Paul had prayed that the Colossians And the Laodiceans, who were apparently threatened by the same heresy, might be comforted through both love and spiritual apprehension, which means spiritual understanding. They were to be comforted through love and understanding. And so, the quote that I wanted to share with you is this, orthodoxy. Just the, the standard of practice. Orthodoxy without love is sterile. Orthodoxy without love is sterile. And love, apart from truth, becomes mush. I don't like mush. Does anybody like mush around here? I'm not talking about your morning oatmeal, okay? But mush is just mush, you know? Orthodoxy without love is sterile, and love apart from truth becomes mush. But together, they issue in spiritual apprehension knowledge of the mystery of God. Knowledge of the mystery of God. In other words, if there is a secret... uh, mystery, musterion, if there is a secret, Paul says, it's been revealed. You know what the secret is? It's very simple. It is Jesus Christ. If there is a secret, it is Christ and it's no longer a secret. That's been revealed now. Christ Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. Jesus Christ is the sole mediator of God's gifts to man. I want you to consider, if you will, Proverbs chapter two, verses one through nine. And listen to the words of Solomon here when he says, my son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart, unto, uh, apply thine heart to understanding. Now keep in mind the words that you're hearing We've stated them already in Colossians, and we'll state them again. He says, yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and lift up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord. You will understand the reverence of the Lord. You'll understand the awe of the Lord that, that is to be given to him through worship. Thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. The word of God. Why is Jesus in John 1 called the Logos? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment. Take hold of those two words, especially righteousness. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. Now that's speaking about wisdom. And yet, if you look at the words of the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses 26 to 31, especially the last few verses here of this passage, listen to what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen, yea? And things which are not, to bring to naught those things things that are. And notice that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now listen carefully to verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. He is our wisdom, Christ is our righteousness. You know, when, it, when, it, when Paul talks about taking off the old man and the old garments of the old flesh and putting on the new man, we're not putting on our own righteousness. We're putting on the righteousness of Christ because he alone is righteous. He alone is holy in the full extent of what that means. But we put on those garments now because it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Now here's the thing, most people are not sure about God. Most people are not sure about God. I mean, they're not sure if God really exists. There's a lot of people that way. I think that even in churches today, there are some people that say, I really don't know. That there's a God that looks after their welfare. They don't know that God is really interested in their daily lives. They're not really sure. That they can know God in a personal way. I don't know. That eternal life really exists. And that they can know that there is truly life after death. You know, there are people today, and they're, they're, they've, they've been around for a long, long time. They, they've chosen a, a word that sounds pretty intellectual. They call themselves agnostics. They say well I'm you know I don't really know I, I you know I, I'm, I'm kind of investigating but I really don't know so I'm not, I'm an agnostic there may be a God that I don't know well I'd like to tell them you know well you know you call yourself an agnostic did you know that there is a a, a term in in the uh, in, in 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 Latin there's a Latin term that that it coincides with the word agnostic There is? Yeah. It's the word ignoramus. (laughs) But but that's true. That's the word in the the Latin. You just called yourself an ignoramus. I don't know. (gasps) But can you know? Yes. God has made it available. God has made it apparent that we can know. See here's the problem some people see the phrase they see the phrase the mystery of God and say to them or or they say that to them in seeing that that God indeed is a mystery but as we've already seen that is not what mystery means in scripture mystery means a secret of God's that he has now revealed Well, what is that great mystery or secret of God that has now been revealed? Take note exactly of what the text says there in verse 2 to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and literally in the Greek it is Kai Christos which is even Christ the whole passage aims at that one statement even Christ is the mystery of God revealed. It is no longer a mystery. Jesus Christ is the mystery of God. It is Jesus Christ that reveals God to men. You remember in our study of the Gospel of John, two things that Jesus said in that Gospel. He said if you have seen me you have seen the Father. And what was the other statement he said? I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Once a person approaches God through Jesus Christ, and by the way, there's still some things that we're not going to know until we get to glory, until we get to heaven. And that's okay, I'll look it up, I I, I don't want to just kind of say, so let me go on because of time, we're almost, we're almost done. But once a person approaches God through Jesus Christ, God places his spirit within the person's heart. And God's spirit infuses strength, both assurance and confidence within the believer's heart. God's spirit gives absolute assurance that we truly know God and are adopted as his dear sons and daughters. We know with absolute assurance that what we believe about God is accurate, it is reliable, and it is true. The spirit of God instills that confidence within our hearts. And all of this will be foundational as we continue on in this passage. And we're going to pick up here the next time. But let me tell you about those two churches. Very quickly, just a quick statement about the churches of Colossae and Laodicea. Because they were targets of the enemy. But we know what happened to Laodicea in the book of Revelation chapter 3. The fact that Satan used luxury... To weaken that church, eventually it became a type of a church of the last days that is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And the Lord said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Colossae would be attacked from the standpoint of being posed with a lie. How would they attack that lie? That is what this letter is all about. Let me leave you with some supporting verses of what I just said about the Spirit being given to us and in our hearts. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16 says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, there's no question You come to Christ, you confess Christ with your mouth, you believe in your heart that he is risen from the dead, you shall be saved. You are bearing witness with God's spirit and God's spirit is bearing witness with yours. Galatians 4 verses 4 through 6 says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, into your hearts. Folks, what is being said here? You can know. You can know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, personally. And he said, I will be with you and I will be in you. I will not just be upon you and and with you, I will be in you. 1 John 3, 24, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he is in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. And lastly, 1 John 4:13 hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. All of this to say, listen, we have to have that. We have to be knit together in love. We have to be knit together in the understanding of who God is and who Christ is and all that we need to know in, in, in understanding his, uh, his overall view of things in these last days. Because we are going to face those very same struggles and trials. We're, going to fa- we're facing it already. Attacks upon the truth of the gospel. Attacks upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's already inside the church, not just outside, inside the church. So this church is unafraid to stand on the truth of the gospel. We will stand on the word of God.